0: That Triathlon Show, 418. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Traflon Show, the podcast presented by ScientificTraflon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode we have a and a episode, it's been a while, this one is themed around off-season training. If you want to make sure that you get the opportunity to submit your questions for future Q&A episodes, uh, please follow Scientific Triathlon HQ on Instagram and sign up for our newsletter on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash newsletter. Those are the two channels where I usually send out requests for questions when uh, when I have a specific theme for a and a that I'm planning on doing. So that's where you will get to see those requests and have the opportunity to submit questions. But before we get into this Q&A big thanks to our sponsors Form. The Form smart swim goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens including split space stroke rate and heart rate. This means that you can execute your swim workouts better and also have more objective data to help you understand where your biggest points for improvements might lie. Form also recently introduced additional metrics related to technique and efficiency in the water for example related to your head rotation during breathing and your head position when in a neutral body position. These metrics can give you even more insight in where you might need to work and improve. You can get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to zen 8. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power and swim training consistency even when you're short on time. It's a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool and it is a perfect complement to pool and open water swimming as it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming like your catch and your power and isolate them more easily than you can in the water. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days so if you don't love it just send it back and you can get 20% off your first order on saneetintro.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado let's get into today's Q&A. All right so before we get into the first question for today I just want to give a bit of a summary of some general themes that came up through these questions and the answers that we will hear in just a little bit uh, all related to off-season training of course. Uh, So let's start with that I will use the term off-season training here to refer to what we're discussing. This would generally speaking be the time from when you first get back into training again after your last race or the previous season until the period where you get into your race specific preparation For your first race of the season, which might be six to eight weeks before that race. A more academic term for this phase or this period of training would be the general preparation and then you would get into your specific preparation and finally the competition period which is essentially the taper period for your race a very short period but then that means that the the general preparation is the big chunk of of this trinity of general preparation specific preparation and competition period Uh, i'm definitely guilty myself of this but i think that uh, we need to move away from talking about base training as some thing you do during winter and then you don't do it again until next winter because that's really not how it works in in my mind your base is something that you build over months and years of continuous training and uh, and it's built across all workouts you do essentially it's not just your easy workouts it's it's everything you do and the, comp- the composition of that training is much less important than the just the chronic workload and the consistency of that chronic workload so it's not something that you build in winter and then it's done and you go on and do something completely different build a different quote-unquote system that's not what it is it is what you do week in, week out, out month in, month out, and year in, year out, out. That's your base. So so that's why I think it's important to make a distinction to off-season training, that's a better term, or general preparation as opposed to specific preparation. That makes more sense because base training colloquially at least seems to imply for most people just training in at low intensity, zone one, zone two, maybe uh, it implies doing long workouts, but uh, that's not what your base is really composed of doing that for a specific period it's everything you've done over years so so off-season training or or general preparation as a terminology or as terms they make to me much more sense And, and i'm going to try to stick with them even though i'm sure i will make that mistake in the future again and talk about the winter training the off-season training as base training but uh, at least now you have a bit of an idea of how i think about these concepts now uh, the next general point i want to make is that there is no single right way or single best way to train during the off-season there are lots of factors to consider when planning what a great structure for each individual athlete might look like for their off-season training so these factors include things such as age training history goals fitness level generally strengths and weaknesses between disciplines physiological profile environment so where where you live climate and training infrastructure infrastructure during that time of year motivational and psychological factors and uh, a lot more there are some elements that i would call common good practice and there are common mistakes and we'll get into some of that through these questions but the main thing to take away from this uh, introduction this preamble is that there is no such thing as a training formula for how to to best train during the off season. And the second main thing is that while some things are different this time of year, a lot more things are very similar to in season training because good training is good training. And the more you can do good training consistently over time, the more you will improve. And uh, this doesn't mean that you're doing the exact same thing all the time. You shouldn't do that. But it's not that the off season is a dramatic overhaul of your in season training necessarily, as it can sometimes be made out to be. And the off-season definitely does not have to mean just doing Zone 1 and Zone 2 training for weeks and months on end. And for me as a coach, it almost never looks like that, uh, I have to say. So with that uh, said, let's get into the first question, which is from William, who asks what kinds of workouts should be done in the base phase besides zone one and zone two training how might one approach these workouts differently as opposed to doing build phases or in the race specific phase so this is part one of william's question by the way there is a part two and but i'll answer this part first and uh, i would start by looking at two things one, the demands of the athlete's goal event and their their goal for that event. And two, the athlete's current profile and abilities in relation to those demands. I call this doing a gap analysis. So you're looking at exactly what gaps you need to bridge. And then for each of these gaps, you try to further break that down into the building blocks con- uh, constituting that gap. And of course, you need to do some kind of prioritization because you can't do everything at the same time so if we take the bike as an example let's say your goal is to do a one hour bike split for an olympic distance triathlon and you are currently at a one hour five minute mark so you need to go from 36.9 kilometers an hour to 40 kilometers an hour so improve your speed for to by 3.1 kilometers per hour that is your gap that's what we try to bridge then we would look at the uh, the constituents of of that gap of how to how to improve speed. So we would look at your power, and we would look at your CDA or an estimate of your CDA. And with this information, when we have done this, we can uh, try to decide if your CDA is more of a limiter or if your power is more of a limiter uh, or in what balance we should work on each. Is it a 50-50 balance or 70-30 one way or another? Or perhaps you have a monster power, but you have a terrible CDA or the other way around, you're super slippery, but you have very low power and then we might focus all attention on one or the other. In this example and in any analysis that you might be doing, I want to highlight that you need to be super attentive and careful with potential measurement errors and try to account for all of them so you know how much or how little confidence you can have in your analysis uh, because there's never you never know if you're right or wrong, but but you should have an idea of how big is the risk that you're wrong or how, how much confidence do you have in your ana- analysis. So for example, if the power that we see that you've done in the past in the olympic distance race is unusually high or unusually low for the speed that you were going then we have a bit less confidence in the measurements and we should maybe try to validate the power meter somehow maybe compare it with the power of your smart trainer or see if we can borrow a different power meter uh, even checking if uh, you had the right crank length settings if it's a pedal based power meter and th- things like that we should try to identify potential issues with the measurements. Triathlon. It's a sport with a lot of data but a lot of the times that data is uh, not accurate for one reason or another so this is something we need to really pay attention to and not just blindly follow data that may or may not be uh, accurate because then that's probably as David Lippmann said in a few weeks back in his episode the incorrect data is worse than no data uh, at least it can be many times so let's say continuing the example uh, that we find that your aerodynamics are actually very good so what we need to work on to get your Olympic distance bike split to one hour is to work on your power now uh, we uh, peel the onion further we dive deeper into what power do we need to work on are you limited by your ceiling so basically you have a flat power duration curve where your threshold is quite close to your vo2 max and we just need to raise that ceiling or uh, is it the other way around that the power that you can push for one hour is way off where it could be based on what you can do for for example five minutes so notice here we don't even need to really concern ourselves with going into the lab and doing tests and so on we can just look at power data and uh, at the power duration curve and and that in itself can be really really illustrative for what we need to do and and what that gap what the constituents of the gap that we're looking at are so if it is that you are limited by your ceiling then we come to the conclusion that we need to we need to raise that ceiling and likely this comes down to a combination of obviously overall volume of your bike training but also specific high intensity work and if it's the other way around that you have a high ceiling but you can't operate at a high percentage of it then we need to work on your endurance where for sure volume is a major factor but maybe we also need to work more on some specific workouts in zone three and zone four so let's call them tempo and threshold work to bridge that gap so, with this simple example, you can see that, uh, to get back to the question that you asked, William, the workouts that you would do outside of zone one and zone two work, they really depend on how your, what your, what your gap analysis is and how that breaks down. And this applies for swimming, cycling and running. So, one thing that you asked as well is how might one approach these workouts differently as opposed to during build phases or in the race specific phase? and uh, i would say that the main thing is to keep a buffer with the overall workload that you're doing so basically if you're on the edge of what is sustainable for six months i do not think that that is a good thing Uh, probably it rarely is a good thing to be right on the edge uh, at any point but i would say during the off season you want to have a bigger buffer than you would normally have anyways just to make sure that you're uh, doing an adaptive workload and not a maladaptive workload so a, a good example here would be that maybe in the specific preparation for a key race uh, that might be a six-week period or an eight-week period you might be doing two hard swims bikes and runs each week for uh, the majority of those weeks but you should not feel like you have to do that in the off season i think that in terms of the individual workouts that you're doing during this time of year during the off season uh, then It's not that you have to hold back necessarily, especially if you're focusing on your ceiling in this example, your short duration power or your short duration pace, then those workouts might be really hard and that's okay. But as a whole, when we look at your chronic workload, what what you're doing over weeks and months, make sure that the training weeks are sustainable. So follow the principle of if in doubt, leave it out when it comes to doing that extra workout with intensity or that final threshold interval, for example. Uh, A few additional points that I want to mention here as well is that a common mistake is to try to do too much or specifically too much at one time. So As I said for me the off-season training does not mean just doing easy training by any stretch but it also definitely doesn't mean smashing training right at your physical and mental capacity for a long time so we want to be smart and deliberate about how much effort we put in and how we balance these efforts to bridge various gaps. Don't try to do everything at one time. Keep in mind that workload over time is really what matters density is in my experience nowhere near as important so you don't need to do two hard swims bikes and runs every week it can work for periods of time but it's best to save those periods for closer to your key races again based on my experience and at this time of year uh, i would say be patient always keep energy in reserve not necessarily in terms of your final hard interval of your high intensity workouts but in terms of how much are you doing each day each week and so on have have some energy in reserve for your overall workload and with that in mind it can be quite effective to focus a bit more on one discipline at a time so in the example above if the bike is the biggest and most important gap that we've identified then let's focus on the bike for a few weeks where we do good volume and we do a couple of really solid workouts with intensity and we keep the swim and run low intensity to give us the best chance to adapt to the bike training And then, maybe after a few weeks of seeing improvements on the bike, we can focus a bit more on the next gap that that we prioritized. Maybe it's your swim takeout speed or your swim endurance. And we put a bit more focus on that and put the bike in more of maintenance mode for, for a little while. Another common mistake is to only look at fitness. And basically, we use our only tool, the hammer, to hit that fitness nail over and over again. But if we do a gap analysis properly, then we should be open-minded to that the the things that are limiting us the the gaps that we need to bridge are not just fitness related Uh, in the above example what if you were pushing 270 watts and we know that the power meter is more or less accurate and you went 36.9 kilometers an hour on a fairly flat olympic distance course then we know for sure that your main limiter is not power because that power should allow you to go a lot quicker on a flat course so we need to look into your efficiency in general and your cda and and in this case maybe this means that you have to invest some more time into working on your bike position or invest in some consultations with an expert or even going to the velodrome as other examples of where we might need to look at efficiency rather than fitness would be if you have really good power on the bike but you're you run very slowly relative to that strength on the bike This can tell us that your cardiovascular and metabolic fitness in general are good because of your bike power. So we need to look into your run efficiency if that is a big uh, limiter of yours and a gap that you need to bridge so then we need to go and look at things like mobility restrictions that you might have and that you might need to work on to improve your running efficiency or maybe you need to do some good general strength training or weight training in the gym to improve your running economy as a personal example the other day i took my gopro to the pool to do a bit of video analysis on my swimming and i found that the main limiter that slows me down right now is that when i'm using a two beat kick two beat kick that for me is not good enough to maintain a good body position i really need to use a six beat kick to maintain a, a good enough body position uh, but the problem is that i don't really have the f- kicking fitness and efficiency to maintain that uh, strong enough six beat kick for 750 to 3 800 meters even at a relatively easy intensity but the great thing with this is that i have identified it already now in november and i have plenty of time to work on it so for the next little while my my swimming objectives is to build my swim fitness specifically as it pertains to holding a six-beat kick rather than my habituated two-beat kick. So I will just be gradually increasing volume and increasing interval distances withholding holding that six-beat kick and when i can do relatively long intervals of steady swimming then i can start to up the intensity but first of all it's just the endurance of that kick that that is my limiter right now because clearly technically i saw that a six-beat kick made a huge difference compared to a two-beat kick to my body position and therefore to my speed uh, so so that's another example of where it's not it is a way of fit. It is a kind of fitness, but it's not the kind of fitness that you just hammer with intensity and volume. It's deliberate practice of a specific element, if that makes sense. And uh, yet another point uh, more generally around this that I want to make is that it may be that your limiter is quite similar to the training that you do in your race-specific preparation. So, for example, you have a high ceiling, you have a high VO2 max, but what you need to work on, or your, your limiter, is sustaining a higher percentage of that ceiling as your race pace. Uh, this uh, might w- very well be true, and uh, you may very well need to work on this. Uh, but. The danger is that you might get sucked into basically doing race pace training plus minus year round if that is the case. So you just need to be a little bit careful in the off season with how you do things if that is uh, your your gap that you want to bridge your your limiter that you're working on and prioritizing it doesn't mean that you don't do tempo or threshold training during the off season by by any means but it just means that how you do it in terms of the amounts that you do and uh, and how you structure it maybe that should be considered maybe you combine it with bursts of vo2 work uh, but above all making sure that you're not on that edge of constantly being quite fatigued from this type of training because it can be very fatiguing as you can do quite a lot of it but that is costly in terms of the the energetic demands and this in itself is could be an entire podcast but basically if you do if you have tempo slash threshold training as something that is a, a bit of a priority then make sure that the entire year is not the same grind of similar training all the time because that can easily become the case for triathletes as that is our race specific intensity as well make sure you don't overdo it at this time of year find some kind of variety to it uh, without ignoring it if it really is your uh, your your main gap that you need to bridge finally a very important point that i want to make is that this process of working through a gap analysis it can be misconstrued as meaning that you will spend a lot of time and a lot of in effort focusing on working on weaknesses basically and that's not necessarily the case in a gap analysis process you should all also consider whether any given gap is or is not a weakness because it might just be it's something that you haven't worked on before at all so it is a weakness in that sense but it's not a natural weakness that your body struggles with but uh, it can definitely be the case that a gap is also a clear weakness let's say for you physiologically uh, or biomechanically or whatever it may be Uh, let's take an example let's say that you're uh, you're a professional triathlete and your swim takeout speed is a is a gap and it is also weakness because generally speaking you're more of a diesel engine not somebody with a good short duration power so then how how do you tackle that gap uh, that's something that should be considered in light of the fact that it is a weakness for you physiologically perhaps uh, so so for example while you definitely need to do some really sharp speed work to improve your takeout speed for athletes for whom that is a weakness just hammering your weakness is generally not a good idea so you need to try to find the minimal effective dose of that and and really earn the side of less is more Uh, i think that yeah just asking asking yourself um, how much not how much do you have to do but how little can i do that that makes sense when it comes to working on weaknesses Uh, but the other thing is finding ways around that weakness so for example can you improve your takeout speed by improving your technique at high speeds? Maybe that's an avenue where you have more rooms for improvement than just the pure metabolic and physiological side of things. Or can you improve it by doing some targeted gym work? Maybe if you combine all three, you can find some improvements from technique and some improvements from the targeted gym work and a little bit of improvement from the highly glycolytic intervals that you might be doing as well. So then the overall improvement is enough that you bridge that gap even if you didn't find uh, that much improvement from those glycolytic intervals, but they contributed to the overall improvement that that you made. So basically the summary of this is don't try to brute force weaknesses into strengths because that is is generally not not a good idea um all right let's move on to the second part of william's question this is how is base training different for triathletes versus single sport athletes i'm interested specifically in running but maybe it's helpful to discuss swimming and cycling as well are there any fundamental differences in what the goals are what kind of sessions might be useful for achieving these goals and what extra stuff a triathlete could exclude from their plan due to the demands of having two additional sports to train so i'll answer this one much more briefly the process for a single sport athlete uh, in my opinion would be the same uh, doing a gap analysis figuring out which things to prioritize first and how to periodize the objectives into their overall program with uh, different focal points without overdoing things the main difference is that for a single sport athlete you don't have to consider the impact of other sports on the main priority for the moment like a triathlete has to to do. So for example, a triathlete with some kind of swim focus might need to really cut down on their run volume and maybe bike volume to give themselves the best chance of really improving their swim in some scenarios. A runner, a pure runner, single sport runner wouldn't have to consider those things, of course. Another difference is that a triathlete, especially a more time-crunched triathlete, needs to consider more carefully... Uh, if they are doing enough work in a specific discipline to get the desired adaptations Uh, because as we try to balance three sports you may come to a point where a balanced program doesn't allow you to improve or at least not improve as much as you you want to in one or more disciplines so what you might need to do is to temporarily rebalance or unbalance your program to achieve a high enough stimulus in a particular discipline to get the desired adaptations and I think that the final difference depends a bit on what your goal event is as a single sport athlete, but let's take an example, your runner focusing on 1,500 to 5,000 meters on the track, then your race-specific training is going to be very high-intensity oriented. So when I said before that triathletes need to be careful with doing Zone 3 and Zone 4 training through the off-season, because that's what they'll be doing a lot of during their race-specific preparation... That for the 1500 to 5000 meter runner, uh, that would apply with high intensity in the off season because that is their race specific training. So, and the same would apply to a swimmer generally uh, and a track cyclist that are doing races or events in that that sort of time range. So just what you need to be a bit more careful with so that you don't overdo uh overdo and over focus on just one end of the intensity spectrum I think is is something that might be different depending on what your what your goal event is. Alright, thank you William for your question. The next question is from Bart who asks can you incorporate races, for example trail running and swift races in the base a training period or will this make base training less effective when you do efforts in zone four and five i struggle a little with a little with this sometimes i read that the winter period is also a good time to improve your vo2 max but that seems strange to me as base training for me is almost exclu- exclusively long endurance efforts in zones one to two all right thank you bart for your question so i think I I already discussed the point about the off-season training being not just long endurance efforts uh, in the introduction to this episode and also in the previous question. It does include intensities of uh, across the, the spectrum really, depending on what the need of the athlete is and their goals are. So so that I think we tackled already. Um, and as for the whether to incorporate races, you almost have two completely independent questions that i want to tackle separately so on the one hand you say that you've read that the winter period is a good time to work on vo2 max but you're not sure if that's true or not so i would say yes the off season is definitely uh, a good period to work on vo2 max Uh, it is of course athlete dependent but generally i think that a lot of age group triathletes especially of slightly older age and i'm not even talking 50 plus but more like 40 plus or it can be 35 plus or 30 plus can benefit from working on their vo2 max so there are some exceptions for example athletes that have recently come into triathlon from a background of a very different sport uh, let's take as an example soccer or football uh, they might often have relatively good vo2 max but also high uh, values for their glycolytic capacity but not necessarily a very high level of endurance so athletes with this kind of metabolic profile or physiological profile they tend to basically have more vo2 max that they can actually use at the moment so they just need to work on the utilization of their vo2 max and their endurance but in a lot of cases again if i'm generalizing a bit for age group triathletes vo2 max tends to be a useful focus point during the off season so so i think that That answers that part of your question, Bart. But then your main question is on whether you can incorporate races like trail running races and swift races in your off-season. And my answer is most definitely yes. Uh, But then keep in mind that this is kind of the connection you made to VO2 Max. Uh, Just because you go as hard as you can in a race, it doesn't mean that it will do anything for your VO2 Max. And that's why I said that these two questions or topics are completely independent. Because for example most trail races are or i would say yeah i I don't know i haven't done any trail race and i've done quite a few that i would say helped my vo2 max in any way Uh, maybe in theory if you really smash it up the first climb of a trail race and then sacrifice the rest of your race in order to do so then it could have some benefit but that's generally not how anybody would do the race so trail races are just too long to be to be VO2 max focused but that's not to say that they are not great training they are I think but they are more to target your endurance your muscular endurance Uh, heart rate wise you tend to get a lot of time in your zone 3 and zone 4 heart rate zone so it can be seen as a kind of tempo and or threshold training as well Uh, but uh, again to me i do a fair amount of trail racing during the winter and the purposes are number one to have fun and number two to work on endurance and muscular endurance so yes very useful uh, but no not useful for vo2 max per se with swift races uh, or any virtual cycling races it depends on the duration of the race but if you have a race that takes you 30 minutes or longer it's not really going to be a VO2 max-focused effort. It's more like your your threshold or your upper limit or your threshold, perhaps. I'm not super familiar with how common it is on Swift to have races that are 10 to 20 minutes long, but races in that time range would definitely be uh, quite good for improving your and targeting your VO2 max. Similarly, in running, for most people, a 10K race is going to be quite threshold-oriented, but a 5K race could be quite VO2 max oriented. Uh, But regardless of what the race is, whether it's a 5k park run, cross-country meet, or a trail half marathon, I think that if it's something that you enjoy doing, it makes sense to incorporate in your off-season training. You don't always have to justify it with physiology. Uh, In some cases, you can make it fit quite well with what you're doing anyway. Or in other cases, you can just throw it in there because it's fun and it's something a bit different. And uh, you can then get back to your main focus point with uh, no harm done, basically. Just recover from the race a bit uh, from an intensity standpoint and then get back to your training focus. One interesting aspect as well of races, I think, is that uh, especially for races that are, let's say, one hour and shorter, many triathletes benefit from these kinds of races as mental and psychological training or really pushing themselves and hurting in a different way than we do in our long Uh, races at least if we're focusing on olympic distance racing and upwards which is let's say two hours and longer Uh, so so i think that that's that's really that can be really good Uh, however uh, it it depends quite a bit i think it's only a benefit if you actually like doing that and you want to do that if you think that you should force yourself to go and do really intense races like 5k or 10k road races and force yourself force yourself to go to the well like that, but you don't really like it, then I think that the mental cost of that is just uh, not worth it. So then I'd either skip it completely or do the races, but don't force yourself to go absolutely to the well. Just hold back a little bit so that you can do it and work hard, but but not mentally drain yourself basically because that's something during the off season that i think is important to not mentally drain yourself Um, another thing is that it's very important when you do include races in your schedule that you account for the load and stress of the race in your overall training program especially considering what i said earlier about uh, having a buffer in your training so that you're not pushing the limit of what you can manage from an overall workload uh, perspective and an overall intensity perspective so definitely remove some other intensity from your pro from your program if you add a race to your program Uh, but i'd also say try to not let any races reduce the volume that you normally do uh, because in the name of trying to achieve a high chronic workload as we talked about uh, as a means to building your base fitness then you do want to try to protect that volume as much as you can and if you by adding races Uh, also consciously or subconsciously reduce the rest of your volume then i don't think that the balance is worth it uh, during the off season i do think that volume is important so what i would recommend is that you you can do the race but you try to do that while still maintaining the volume that you would have done otherwise in that week Right, so that's Bart's question answered. Thank you for that. Bart and the next one is from Thomas who asks, What is the difference between EC slash recovery and base training? Is there a difference in RPE? If so, what should the RPE of base versus recovery be? Or is a short uh, let's say less than one hour is a short, sorry, I need to read this question. Is a short less than one hour, let's say at base RPE equal to recovery training And does that turn into a base training at longer durations? And is that different or the same for different sports? Uh, Yeah, lots of questions there. uh, And I I think I get get the gist of them, even though I made a mess out of reading it out loud. So the first thing that I want to say here is that I don't think that recovery training exists. If you're training, you're training. And if you're recovering, you're recovering. Uh, the two are fundamentally opposed. And admittedly, I know that in uh, on the podcast in the past or in some of my older training plans, uh, I have called easy runs or easy rides, recovery runs and rides. But uh, I'm always trying to not just improve the way i understand training and coaching but also the clarity with which i talk about it so uh right now or anymore I don't, I don't talk about recovery runs and rides anymore that means that i'll read your question as what is the difference between easy training and base training and by base training i think that you mean more steady endurance training let's call it zone two training as opposed to zone one training so to answer this question, we have to understand that training load is a function of duration and intensity. The load of a workout can be high regardless of intensity if it's long enough. Go and watch an ultra marathon, and, and that becomes extremely clear or go out and ride for uh, seven, eight hours and that becomes extremely clear. We have to understand that you can use an infinite number of combinations of duration and intensity to create a training load of each and every training session. And secondly, we have to understand what does base mean uh, in, in the context of base fitness. I think that at its essence, as I said, your base is a chronic workload that you have and we're looking at chronic workload over years not over weeks it's not the training peaks metric it's not any metric that exists on the dashboard and it's not something that i have tried to to measure or quantify in any way but it it is something that would uh, would look at years rather than weeks or months of of training so If our base fitness is a function of workload or years and the workload of each workout or session can be modulated by duration and intensity, we have, in theory, an almost infinite or we have an infinite number of options for how to build that base. We can use shorter duration, a higher intensity, or longer duration, less intensity. In practice, we do know that duration is always going to be really important because it's simply not possible to achieve the same workload with focusing too much on higher intensities it's just isn't sustainable over the long term but still there is some room to play with the intensity and duration parameters uh that we can we can use and we can experiment with and and find a good balance for each athlete and one of these is how to find basically balancing the amount of zone one and zone two work and we're talking a five zone training system here so Zone 1 and Zone 2 are both low-intensity training, but Zone 1 is just the easy training and Zone 2 is the more steady endurance training. So if we look at a fairly short session as an example, uh, one hour or shorter, for example, then I would uh, prescribe an easy endurance session a Zone 1 session as RPE of 2 to 3. And the steady endurance session, which would be a zone two session, I would prescribe as an RPE of four to five. That's how I do it. I'm not saying that this is like the the be all end all or the one correct answer, but that's how I uh, demarcate zone one and zone two for shorter sessions. For longer sessions though, this is where we start to have a bit more fatigue due to the duration. So if we prescribe the session purely based on RPE, then the pace or power needs to be adjusted uh, to be able to cope with that duration. For example, if I prescribe a 2-hour run to you and I say that I want you to do this run with an RPE of 4 to 5, then that to me would mean basically an <laughs> an average for the run. So the pace you do for that for that entire run session might be the same that you would do for a 45 to 60-minute run where the RPE prescribed was 2 to 3. Basically, you're running slower than you would do for a shorter session because the duration of the session will make it feel harder anyway or uh, put another way i could also prescribe that run for you to be in your zone two heart rate range without specifying what rpe i wanted to run so if i prescribe you the zone two heart rate range to hold that for two hours then this run would inevitably lead to a higher RPE than a one-hour run at the same heart rate. Let's say it's 130 to 140 beats per minute. Maybe you finish the one-hour run and you say that that was an RPE of three, and maybe you finish the two-hour run and say that that was an RPE of five. Um, th- this really will depend on, on the athlete and their fitness, but but this this is the general the, generally how it works. You You can't really separate... RPE is dependent on, on duration and intensity just as a training load workload is dependent on, on duration and intensity. On this topic of how the duration of the session impacts the RPE I would say that it's important to keep in mind that generally speaking most amateur athletes, especially would fatigue the quickest in swimming. So if I ask you to swim at your easy pace for 400 meters but then I ask you to hold that same pace for 2000 meters Those last 400 meters of the 2000 continuous swimming might actually feel very hard. That's how, generally speaking, poor our ability to hold pace is in swimming. Again, I'm generalizing. This is not true for everybody, but it's true for a lot of amateur triathletes. Uh, And in running, we also—that's the second one where we fatigue more quickly. We can most amateur triathletes can definitely hold their running effort a lot longer than swimming, but fatigue starts to creep up on us maybe in the second hour of a run uh, that's when the, the muscles start to fatigue a bit and cycling is the one that most amateur triathletes can do the longest without without fatiguing without basically an RPE uh, creep So so that's something that we have to take into account as well when it comes to planning and prescribing sessions But I think that this has answered some of your questions, uh, but I I want to finish off with some practical tips that maybe might answer any of the points that I, I haven't gotten to already. So the first one is that there is not a specific RPE that you should train at. Depending on your time available to train and your fitness level, you might choose to focus more or less on the zone one versus zone two endurance training, or basically you might shift the balance of the two a bit more. I would say that... The trend that I see is maybe people doing too much zone 2 work and for a lot of people it would be helpful to switch that for a more zone 1 balanced approach because training in zone 2 does cause more fatigue than in zone 1 in my experience, so that can be a net negative to achieve a higher overall workload through higher volume and it can also be a negative on in terms of performance in your more intense workouts in zone 3 and upwards. But there are definitely some scenarios where I would use more zone 2 work for example very fit athletes but that are also very time restricted these athletes can generally recover better from zone 2 training than less fit athletes because they have a stronger base and they are also better at making sure that they really stay in zone 2 rather than sneaking into zone 3 and 4 so so in this situation uh, I would use more than two balance, a more than two balanced approach to get more bang for buck from their aerobic training. Uh, it's a kind of a variation of the time-crunched athlete model, where if you have less time, you train harder. Uh, but the important thing to keep in mind here is that we are talking about very fit athletes that can handle that slightly harder aerobic training better than less fit individuals. Also, because they are training far from the uh, the limit in terms of volume that they could achieve. They are just time limited rather than capacity limited, so so that's that's the key thing to keep in mind there. Also, it's not about replacing your low intensity training with high intensity training. They're still doing that low intensity training, but it's just less low intensity than Zone One would be. And uh one more point, two more points actually. One is that if you want to do a super traditional base training model where you don't do you do all your training in Zone One and Zone Two uh, for some time, then Of course, you can do a higher amount of your training in zone two than if you also try to incorporate tempo slash threshold slash VO2 max workouts in your schedule. I would argue that it's better to to have have some of those more intense workouts and then balance a bit more towards zone one and a bit less towards zone two. Uh, I I think that generally you get more bang for buck that way, but if you want to give that a, a try, then that is a scenario where it might make sense to have quite a bit more zone two work than you would normally do because you're not doing any of that intense training and then the final point is that we don't need to overthink this and especially less advanced and less fit athletes athletes they don't have that wide a span in the zone one and zone two area so you might get into zone three quite quickly especially on the swim and the run So we don't have to really overthink our end zone one or zone two. They kind of blend together. So just focusing on going easy enough, that can often do the trick. And we don't really need to to overanalyze things. It might not be all that helpful. Thank you very much for your question Thomas and now we go into the next question which is from Tom who asks in episode 169 with Sebastian Weber he mentions that doing weight training can be can boost VLA max while long slow distance is a boost to VO2 max but might reduce VLA max and that doing both at the same time might be suboptimal would it be better to split off season training into a period where VLA max can increase and one where VLA max can decrease. So, this one, I, I don't want to go into the weeds of the physiology here, but just a quick summary for listeners that might not be familiar with the VLA max terminology. Basically, that can be seen as a marker for glycolytic capacity or more colloquially anaerobic capacity. And the premise of the question is that. To some extent, there is a tug-of-war between one's anaerobic and aerobic capacities that affect performance capacity also over much longer durations, like for example, uh, a marathon or a triathlon uh, duration. So with that introduction, to answer your question, I have definitely experimented with this line of reasoning in the past, and where I have come down on this is that uh, it almost at the same time both oversimplifies and overcomplicates things, uh, which sounds counterintuitive. What I mean is that I think that it's an oversimplification of performance modeling and training uh By just looking at metabolism, uh, kind of ignoring a lot of other factors going into performance rather than just metabolism. So for example, in the example here, we are talking about weight training. Weight training is fantastic for improving exercise economy and, uh, and especially running economy so even if we accept the premise that uh, strength training could increase anaerobic capacity vlmx and that that could lead to reduced performance or longer duration efforts then i would still say that the uh, that is outweighed by the fact that we can work on our exercise economy and improve that not to mention the fact that strength training can also be a great vehicle for injury prevention so which might just help us train more consistently and which is the most important thing so that's the oversimplification part that this is a view that i think really really goes into the weeds of metabolism without without necessarily considering Other factors outside of metabolism. The overcomplication part is the part where we think we can so precisely fine tune some physiological marker and control it, and that by fine tuning that marker, we can then control our performance very precisely in turn. And this is not unique to just the VLA max theory, it's a general phenomenon. Uh, For example, we see the same thing play out when discussing VO2 max, LT1, LT2, or FTP. If you've ever read discussions on Twitter or Reddit or forums about FTP as an example, then how many times have you seen heated arguments about whether you should do FTP training at 90 to, or 95 or 100 of ftp uh, to best improve it and then it turns into an argument about the best way to measure ftp and it, this is probably a lot of times if you frequent these forums for training discussion and this is where i think that a lot of people are just making things overly complicated because we might be asking ourselves or saying to ourselves that okay i need to improve my ftp Uh, because I'm going to ride my Olympic distance bike leg at 90% of my FTP. So then what is the best way for me to improve my FTP? Uh, Well, first, I need to know exactly how to measure it. And secondly, I need to know what is the best way to do FTP intervals. And uh, that is just, it just becomes a very convoluted way of thinking rather than just saying that, all right, This year, I rode my Olympic distance bike legs at around 250 watts. I I want to improve this. I want to do 270 watts next year. And you're just thinking about, okay, well, how, how do I bring my 250 watts to 270 watts? We don't need to bring FTP into the question at all if we don't want to. And we certainly don't need to. Uh, overly analyze whether how we should measure it or whether we should be doing the intervals at 90 or 95 or 100 percent of of that number. So this is not to say that understanding physiology doesn't help with uh, with planning training but I think a lot of people would actually train better with focusing more on the pure performance demands rather than mixing in physiology uh, which can be fraught with error. So to bring it back to the question whether to per- periodize your off-season based on VLA max my answer would would be no there's no point in doing that for the reasons that i just mentioned that basically what we're doing then is we're thinking that we have great control or a physiological marker and we can we can with great accuracy predict how that will impact our performance and that is just filled with a lot of assumptions and and a better way of doing things would be to just think about the performance demands and uh, not over complicate things basically by by going too into the weeds with trying to work on physiological markers Uh, also just to add to the specifics of this question about strength training and specifically weight training i think that uh, my experience here is that the gains that you make in the in the gym can be lost very quickly so coming on and going off strength training or weight training doesn't make much sense to me i think it's better to even do just a little bit of it every week uh, rather than to block periodize it somehow where you would do quite a lot certain periods and nothing or very little other periods uh, what can work nicely is to do two sessions per week in the gym in the off season and and build up your strength and then drop it to one session per week if you need to during the racing season and maintain those gains but yeah coming on and going off strength training i think you're just uh running into losing the adaptations that you just gained and and even Injury risk might increase when you come back to strength training after dropping it, and so on. Similar to to running, which we'll actually get onto in the next question. So, so I would say that no, it makes more sense to be more consistent, even if it's doing just a little bit of strength training each week rather than to uh, to change too drastically uh, between periods of of the season there. Thank you for the question, Tom. And uh, then we go on to the final question for today, which is from Mickey, who asks, what's your opinion on an effective way to reintroduce and build intensity after a long season and significant off-season break? Let's say over the first three months uh, leading up to the first race of this new season. I'm currently trialing, doing base training, then VO2 training, then race paced blocks to get race fit. Thank you for that question, Mickey. So uh, an effective way to reintroduce and build intensity is to remember that we easily overestimate what we can achieve in a short time frame and underestimate what we can do in a long time frame. I think I first heard this as a business quote to the effect of we overestimate what we can achieve in one year and underestimate what we can achieve in 10. And I think that the same goes for training but of course this presumes that we have really good consistent training in that long time frame that's the, the crux of it really uh, the advice that i gave is to take this mindset to not try to rush and try to do fantastic workouts in three to four weeks time but think about where you want to be in three months in in your example and work backwards from there remembering that one of the biggest threats if not the biggest threat to you reaching the objectives that you have is if you do the mistake of doing too much at any point and then losing out on good consistent training uh, which uh, could be because of injury or illness or just getting overly fatigued and having to scale back and uh, i would say that there's no problem starting to do some intensity even the first week of training Uh, it's just that you should do very little of it and also that uh, you shouldn't go too hard at least on the run I think it this is really important focus on having a frequency of intensity that is really manageable and gradually build the volume of intensity in each intense workout that you have so i'd say in cycling and swimming you don't need to be afraid of hitting high-ish intensities early on i'm not saying go absolutely all out and smash yourself but but do short intervals with long recoveries that allow you to hit high intensities and in running i'd also do short intervals but i would uh, keep it more controlled in terms of the the pace and focus on things like threshold pace basically or your pre-break threshold pace so it might actually be a bit faster than your threshold pace right now but i would be okay with that but not go to any kind of uh, yeah 2 like work until you have a few sessions under your belt at that more threshold like intensity on the run and and when you get to that point i'd also consider using hills to allow you to hit those higher intensities but without actually having very high speeds Now, with the frequency of intensity, one thing to keep in mind is that you don't have to limit yourself to a weekly microcycle. Maybe you find, for example, that you can do an intense session exactly every other day and recover well. So you could build out that pattern over a two-week cycle rather than a one-week cycle. And uh, that's just an example, of course, and it might not be right for you. But the point is that if you limit yourself to everything has to fit in a weekly cycle, then it might force you to either overshoot or undershoot a more optimal target. So be creative there. So those were some pieces of very general advice. But let's give some specific examples. Let's say you want to use the first four weeks to build up to the full VO2 sessions that you will be doing in your VO2 block. Uh, Again, these are examples here, but let's let's assume that 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 is kind of what you're looking at doing. Then let's work backwards from what that full VO2 session might look like. Uh, probably 20 minutes worth of work and uh, maybe you're looking at doing five by four minutes and then gradually try to increase the intensity there maybe uh, adding in some more variable power intervals like the Ernestad 4060s or something uh, whatever it might be but let's take that five by four minutes on the bike as what you want to build up to in a four-week block now how many bike sessions will you have time for in those four weeks? That is something that you will need to plan out. And you plan that out, of course, knowing as well what you will be doing on the swim and on the run. But let's say that you you see that you can fit in six bike sessions in that four-week period. Then what we want to do is basically look at the progression of total work duration that we can do in six sessions to get to, to that 20-minute work duration in the seventh session and that might be in the first session doing four minutes of work in the second session doing eight minutes of work then 12 14 16 and 18 and that would be in the sixth session and then in the seventh session you would be hitting 20 now we can look at the intro duration how that progresses similarly and this might be starting with 30 second intervals in the first session then 45 second intervals then one minute 90 seconds two minutes and three minutes until you hit those four minuters in the seventh session so so then we combine that the total work and the intro duration and we have a session progression that would basically look like 8 by 30 seconds, 10 to 11 times 45 seconds, 12 times 1 minute, 9 times 90 seconds, 8 times 2 minutes, 6 times 3 minutes, and then 5 times 4 minutes, which is that first session where you hit 20 minutes worth of work. Just an example, but uh, this is uh, a session-to-session progression where you won't do any massive jumps at any point. However, if you were to jump from nothing to five by four minutes, that would be a massive amount. Or from the first session of eight times 30 seconds to five by four minutes, that would also be a very big jump. So in this way, you have mapped out a progression that will take you gradually from your starting point to the end point or where you want to be in four weeks' time. In terms of recoveries between intervals, I'd say when building up to your target load, don't worry about taking quite long rests basically take the rests you need to be able to hit the actual intensity and worry on recoveries a lot later with swimming you can build up your progression in a similar way but of course be more mindful of uh, the total work you can do and the length of intervals you can do without your form completely breaking apart so here for most for athletes you might not want to build up to very long intervals when it comes to high intensity work maybe if your intervals are in the 90 seconds to two minute range that is enough and then you just adjust the number of reps accordingly uh, because that way it's easier for you to perhaps hold uh, a decent enough uh, mechanical uh, efficiency and uh, a good stroke essentially without it breaking apart also there really it makes even more sense in, in swimming to take enough rest between intervals so that the quality of the intervals are uh, is really good. And then running, as I said, uh, you would want to be more conservative and uh, start with a lower intensity around threshold, I would say, and build up some time at that intensity before progressing to higher intensities. I would also account for a much slower progression when it comes to running than the other sports, Uh, And I would also say that if there's one sport where most athletes should take the shortest break from it is running Uh, because even if you might take a two-month break from cycling and swimming for whatever reason then I try to get back into running much more quickly let's say after two weeks so that you don't need to lose so much of your tissue adaptations and build them up from basically scratch which then could cause you to be more injury prone when you get back into running when it comes to running consistency is the best form of injury prevention really so that's something to consider as well when it comes to to your your break and the duration of your break but other than that uh, similar principles but a lot slower and starting with lower intensities so thank you mickey for a question that was the last question for today and uh, i hope that you enjoyed it as always you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com as i mentioned follow us on instagram and sign up for the newsletter i'll link to that in the show notes scientifictriathlon.com forward slash newsletter and uh, then you will have chances to uh, to request questions when i send out requests for them if you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals then consider working with the scientific triathlon coach or training plan We have options for athletes of all different levels, for different budgets, and no matter the size of your goals. A few points that I want to highlight to reduce the barrier to get started is that we have no minimum commitment term nor startup fees for coaching. And for training plans, we have 100% satisfaction guarantees for plans purchased directly on our website and an exchange guarantee so you can exchange your plan for another plan if you purchase through Training Peaks. We also have consultation options and customized plans. You can find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss your goals and needs and see what's best for you. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post swim analysis. And use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim Goggles. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate swim training to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get a time efficient Senate workout done at home that will help you swim better and stronger. You can try to send a risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on senatesinter.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft.